The Diary of a CTO podcast. Sharing the secrets of successful CTOs. Brought to you by Trimor, the home of technology recruitment. Hosted by Guy Bevington. So Sam, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Um, so by way of introduction, um, Sam, you are the, well, I'd say a revered CTO and technology leader, absolutely, and uh, currently the VP of engineering for DARE. Um, and DARE, a business that's definitely doing some very interesting work in the renewables and green energy space, which I'm sure we'll we'll get onto in a while. Um, but yeah, let's start with you. Um, I think your journey through uh, into tech leadership seems like you've taken, dare I say, quite a, a classical route of starting as a hands-on developer, working your way through up into management. Um, so, so talk us through your personal story and, um, yeah, I guess where it all began for you in tech and, and how you got into uh, to tech in the first place. Excellent. Good to be here, Guy. Um, yeah, I guess we start um, in a traditional place um, out of school, um, taking a pretty traditional STEM-based approach, went into uh, uni, studied robotics for a while, and then out of there into uh, engineering roles and, and hands-on junior engineer working on kind of some price scraping and analytics tools um, and really getting into that world of, of writing software. Um, that company grew to be a bit more of an agency and, and a web agency and did some marketing stuff with them and e-commerce. Um, a lot of hands-on, um, a lot of hands-on work there where I was dropped into problem areas just as a team of, I think we called ourselves the client services team, which was basically this little huddle of engineers that would get hot, dropped in, fix a problem and then pull back out again. The firefighters. Um, with the case firefighters, thing. exactly. And that, that was really good fun. It let me touch lots of different things and I hit Marks and Spencer and Facebook and River Island and a few kind of big names and it was really great to get hands-on that size project at that that early stage. Um, spent a while there kind of growing and, and honing uh, core craft and from there into the startup world. Um, and I was first engineer through the door at a few startups, um, which is the inheriting um, previously outsourced projects that had gone horribly wrong and then sure, bring it in in-house. Oh yeah, some horrific, horrific code bases picked up and then um, as part of that process, started growing engineering teams almost by accident, um, kind of being, oh, I need a designer. Oh, now I need another pair of hands. And then before you know it, you end up looking after engineers and you spend less and less time coding. Um, from there, I moved towards um, kind of areas of more interest to myself. Um, you know, a little bit of experience under the belt meant that I could start to get a bit pickier about what the projects were that I was working on. And I moved into um, some high-risk IoT cybersecurity work. Um, and that was really good fun. Again, able to touch lots of different industries there, some um, automotive kind of high-end sports cars with IoT in them, um, some medical devices, and then through there, some oil and gas. Oil and gas work in IoT, led me towards the uh, the line jump um, that then got bought out by Shell where I led kind of engineering functions there, especially looking after their IoT and, and asset control. And from there towards DARE, um, which is where I uh, look after the engineering functions at DARE. Um, again, kind of using that data science technology um, and growing a team up over the past 
kind of year and five months, year and six months now um, into a really strong, well-functioning engineering team, um, which is it's really nice, nice sensation to look back at them and be like, hey, this team is is starting to really purr. Um, yeah, I bet. Absolutely. Led us to here. Yeah, well, I mean, very, uh, you know, impressive stuff and, and what you've achieved so far, I guess, across a breadth of different sectors and industries as well. And uh, you know, clearly, uh, no no accident that you've got to where you've got to as a, as a you know, a revered uh, tech leader. Um, so talk us through, I'm always really interested in that transition when, this is a conversation I have quite regularly with, uh, you know, my candidates around when is the right time to maybe move away slightly from the coalface, become less of an IC, maybe moving to management um, because, you know, as, as I'm sure we're all aware, the best devs don't always make the best managers, right? So mm. I think it's definitely a certain type of person that, that kind of lends well to technology leadership. But how did you know it was the right time for you? You kind of made out a little bit there. It was almost sort of happened by accident, but did you feel it was a conscious transition to kind of become less hands-on, move more into the, the pastoral kind of leadership side? Um, how did that happen for you? I think... Um... I think it started as a happy accident um, is the honest answer. It started as a happy accident by taking on engineers um, and them needing, uh, they needed that person to look after them to take them through that process. Um, and so for the first couple, I fell into it just by being the person who was there doing it. Um, but then I was able to look back and go, actually, I'm really, I'm really enjoying this. This is not what I thought it was going to be. You know, I'd, I'd come from that, I'm going to say stereotypical dev background of, you know, I like code and I don't like people. Um, but then realizing actually this is, this is really good fun. This is, this is nice to be able to solve these problems. And and that was the, the problem solving that really um, uh, pushed it over for me to realize that this was still, um, still problem solving, still ticking the little bits of my brain that, that mattered for me, that gave me enjoyment in a day job was to say this, this holds value um that desire to make an impact that desire to still um make some positive impact to the product via the people um mattered uh, a kind of tongue in cheek described it as the highest the highest level programming language possible um yeah it was still fixing things still still solving the underlying problem but through the medium of whiteboards and slide decks um i guess then the the really tricky bit became once i'd realized that i liked it how do you then shift your entire i'm going to say brand for want of a better word to say hey i'm not really this person that is here just on the the back of being a, a coder i'm actually here as an engineering leader mm. um and that's a really interesting different way of promoting yourself to recruiters and then to all the candidates and and as you go out um and that's the conscious decision of saying right this is what i want to put myself forward as um and a lot of that becomes how you approach a problem it's a different layer of abstraction that you, you're approaching it in and mm. i've seen people go the other way as well i think it's something that people um really struggle with is this idea that you go through your career as an engineer and you kind of start off you're a junior and a midway and a senior and a tech lead and then you look around and you say what's next well obviously i become an engineering manager and then become a vp and then a C. like there's almost a trajectory that goes well you stop being an ic yeah. your only next thing is to do um engineering management without realizing it's not a progression you don't fall off of the ic track into management it's a parallel track and it needs to be 
viewed as this separate track. You can move back and forth between them, but I think a lot of times it's it's imagined as a as a one way track, and it needs to be imagined more as a side by side stream, mm. um, and not better. I think that's the the misconception is that it's a somehow better role. Um, more needs to be put into to ICs that are able to keep progressing and overtake their engineering managers in terms of their career progressions and things like having staff engineer and, and principal engineer type roles who are able to take really deep ownership of their areas um, mm. really matters. I've seen fellow engineering managers try it out, give it a go and then go, oh, I, I miss I miss being able to code. I miss being able to do the thing. So it is um, definitely important that people are able to give it a go, but also able to go back to IC and continue their careers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very, very good point. Um, and I think it's something I've certainly seen throughout my time in, you know, kind of 15 years of recruitment of the better companies are the ones now in terms of retention. I, th I think you're right. It was always this kind of assumed route of if you don't want to be an IC anymore, well, that's it, leadership, you know, it's kind of going to management and you've got to be a, a dev manager or an engineering manager. And I think a lot of the companies that actually have retained good talent or got a good culture around this are the ones that, that actually create as, as compelling a path you know to maybe go more down the like say principal route or the architecture or whatever it may be um you know but make them aware that there's always these two options that are available and you know it's, one is not better than the other and um <clears throat> yeah one's not necessarily seen as as, as uh, you know more respected or more highly respected so uh yeah i, I definitely um definitely agree with that i mean from your experience as a leader now, what do you what do you feel are kind of the key traits that make a really successful CTO? And that's a very broad question, but do you feel there's any kind of particular personality attributes, um, like you say, that maybe sometimes are associated with devs of you know love code, hate people? But what do you, what do you feel about you know being a CTO? What do you feel are the kind of the, the core um, traits that make somebody a strong CTO? Well, that's a uh, that's a difficult question without. Uh, and you make it sound really, uh, really exciting role to drop into from that world. I, I think it's still in people. I think the soft skills is what makes that shift possible. Um, which sounds it sounds glib. It sounds a bit like oh, practice those soft skills. But it's important to know that they're they're practicable skills. Like they're things you can pick up books and read and learn. They're not some kind of innate. Oh well, that person is really good at you know diffusing conflict and speaking to stakeholders. They're things that you can learn and practice without signing like a psychopath. You can pick up a book on emotional intelligence and realize where your weak spots are. You can pick up a book on um, your conflict resolution or, or giving bad news and and hone that as a skill that you can get you can get good at just, just treated that way. Some people it comes naturally to, in the same way as some people are just natural software engineers. Yeah. And it's always nice to have that as a starting point. Um, but they are skills that can be, can be tweaked and honed. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That emotional well-being, that's, that's the thing where it starts from. Um, caring for your engineers, I feel is a, um, a core tenant of being a good leader in the engineering space. If you don't care for them as humans, they're never going to kind of succeed as a team of engineers in the long term. You can crack the whip and that lasts you perhaps one or two sprint cycles before the resentment will start to grow and you have no ability to impact change then. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I couldn't agree more. I think uh, definitely the soft skills. It sounds like you say you know kind of uh, a relatively obvious answer, but it's not at all. I think you know when when actually when I think back to I've worked with a lot of CTOs throughout my career and the ones that I genuinely you know really respect and and I've seen go on to be very successful are the ones that you would say they have you know exceptional ability to take people on a journey. You know, I always call it kind of winning hearts and minds, and I think that's. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a uh, very important piece of it because um, in the tech world, you know, you have a real opportunity. I feel the role of a CTO or a technology leader now is such an exciting role because proportionately, you know, the, 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 the tech piece is driving change, you know, exponentially faster in businesses than any other role, you know, in my personal opinion. So you actually have a huge amount of, um, you know, influence or, or potential there to, to, to create. And it's about taking everybody that's maybe not from a technical background, kind of on that journey with you and, you know, the ability to communicate well and have the strong soft skills and, and let technology kind of be the, you know, the, the beating heart of the business, or the driving heart of the business, I think is, uh, is very, very important. And uh, yeah, those CTOs that, that do that really well, um, yeah, ultimately go on and, and uh, achieve great success. So uh, yeah, I, I massively agree with that. Um, so what, um, in terms of your, before we talk a little bit about your role at DARE and some of the really interesting what you're doing there, as a leader, what, what do you feel some of the, are the biggest challenges that you faced, um, you know, it could either be from a, a people or a culture point of view, or, or maybe, you know, growing something, scaling something, but what, um, what would you feel are some of the greatest challenges you face and how have you actually overcome those? I mean, the hardest things are scaling. Well, there are two hard things. There's scaling and there's there's descaling as well. Um, so especially through the startup worlds, the biggest challenges were saying, hey, this this team, this company is running short on money. We might have scaled up excitingly. The business itself is not doing well and we need to cut cut costs and we need to cut down on what's going on. And that's always the worst. That's the worst thing to have to do. Is to say, you know, that the company has grown and now needs to now needs to shrink. Um, whether that's through them picking through who are the weakest performers in your team, and sometimes that always has to happen. Um, and that's got to be one of the hardest conversations you ever have as a leader is to say, it's time to leave this team. Uh, we put so much effort on growing and retaining and, and nurturing talent to then have to say we have to do the opposite that's that's got to be the hardest thing um on the more positive growth at scale and kind of growing teams very rapidly um maintaining whatever it is that kept that company worth going to in the first place is often the culture um there are some points where you want to hone that culture and you hone that by bringing on the right people you know you might start up a uh, you start your startup and you've got great hackers and people who are willing to cut corners and bodge things and get it out just to get it around the corner. Um, that attitude doesn't always take you to scale. You know, it might be great for your first you now eight engineers. Um, but over time, then you realize, hey, we need to build a bit more process in this. We need to build a little bit more rigor in what we do. We've got customers who now depend on our product and it's no good just... Um, throwing something out the door and that takes a different attitude um it's really difficult then you can't just go out and hire someone who is just the complete polar opposite of the team culture that you have it mm. has to be 
a gradual shift of um, bringing in someone who's a little bit closer to that that end state, bringing in someone who's uh, perhaps has a dream of the end state, but is happy to work in the old way and be part of the transition. So you have to very gently shift culture. You can't just throw something in and expect these two complete opposite binaries to to collide. Um, mm. That's probably the hardest thing, and that's like playing this really bizarre resource management game of um, you know if you push too hard in one area, you'll impact something else, and you have to be uh, gentle nurturing that team culture yeah yeah absolutely i can also imagine it's it's the ability to take the other leaders of the business kind of on that journey with you as well around the importance of actually establishing best practice and having thorough processes and principles in place because you know because to guess a lot of non-technical stakeholders and maybe non-technical leaders you know all they really care about is is getting something out the door (laughs) working products out the door actually you've got to yeah, think about how it, how it continues to to scale and make sure it's um you know robust processes involved within it as well. But you've obviously done this multiple times, like say in different startups now, and really interested to pick your brains on what what do you think are some of the most important things to consider when you're you're building a you know a tech tech function a tech team and a product from from scratch. Um, it's always the people. It's always the people. The tech stuff sorts itself out um, if you've got the right people in place. So as I'm hiring, I'm always looking. Um, my leading indicator are curious people, tinkerers, people who are willing to not necessarily follow the uh, the trodden path before, have an appreciation for it. Um, but yeah, that tinkerer mindset will always tickle me. Um, I kind of make it a rule to have only people in teams who are engineering. So my engineering managers, for example, have all been ex-engineers. They've all worked that job. Um, They've all done it. They've all been there in the trenches of, oh no, this one pointer ticket is suddenly this monstrosity because there was some hidden complexity. So there's an appreciation um, of what's going on. And then it means that they can get involved and and help because they still have that, that mindset of, Hey, let's get stuck in. Hey, let's learn about what's happening. Let's learn the underlying root causes, um, rather than um, I'm just here for the nine to five. Um, I'm just here for the paycheck. I only want this thing. There's a space for that. There's a space for that. I'm sure in in other jobs where you need the consistency of output in the startup scale up, um, you have to be willing to look around at different options and. How can you how can you go about things in a slightly weird way to get the output that you need? Um, the old advice of, of do things that don't scale to start with. Um, you know, if things need to be a manual process for now, uh, an appreciation of uh, for now is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Would you say then when you're when you're hiring, even at an earlier stage, um, would you say you always hire more for attitude? than skills always 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 attitude you can teach skills um and not just can you teach skills if they have the right attitude they want to uh, those candidates that want to learn new skills the candidates that want to grow into a different area mm. obviously if i've got two candidates with a similar kind of attitude and one of them knows the tech stack already then i'm going to pick the one that also matches technology wise um but if i've got someone who is near enough on the tech but has a stunning attitude that's 
that kind of personality again we're back to soft skills um people are more than just code outputting um kind of resources that's that's the wrong thing they are people that need to fit into a team and the way in which they fit into the team matters way more than their raw output yeah, yeah absolutely i mean I like the way you put it when you talk about tinkerers <laughs> i guess it is Tinkerer. and that's kind of like you know actually parallels quite well with recruitment because you know whenever i look to hire anybody in in the job you know the mechanics of the job that we do is not necessarily overtly different and difficult but it's definitely about attitude and it's definitely about taking a real mm. kind of tenacious problem solving approach to any situation and i guess if you are that kind of person that you know is a tinker is curious is always looking for the solution and um you're looking to approach any problem with a problem solving mindset then um yeah like you say the the skills are almost learned as a byproduct of actually going through the motions of solving the problem, aren't they? Um, so uh, yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, okay, cool. Let's let's move a little bit on to then your role currently uh, and the work that you're doing at Dare, because I think it's an area of you know green energy renewables is a very exciting area of technology and something I think is more and more on people's radar at the moment. Um, so yeah, really interested to hear a bit more about the, what you're doing there and, and I guess kind of what the future of, um, you know, green energy and, uh, um, the renewables tech scene looks like. Sure. So, um, yeah, again, as I say, as I, as I scaled up in my own career, I was able to start picking companies that mattered more to me. And I, I feel now that it's important that when I work, I'm doing something positive for the world. You know, I go to work, I do a thing, and at the end of the day, I can look back and say, yeah, as a result of my efforts, I can I can have made some kind of positive impact, which um, happily led me to Dare. Um, and Dare, Dare is an energy tech company. Um, so we're using data science, we're using analytics, we've got traders on board, and we're pushing for that renewable world. We're pushing for technology solutions, clean tech solutions that help us get to the renewable world faster than before. Um, we've got teams that are working on um, optimizing physical assets. So that's kind of batteries and all the assorted things that get with it, wind and solar and hydro and all of these new technologies that are starting to come out can be modeled, um, optimized and get the most out of them. Um, and I'm kind of the, the opinion that whatever the world is that we live in, um, the, the capitalist view still exists and you have to make the most of those assets. They have to fit within the structure that we have. Mm. And that is if you can optimize an asset for maximum financial return, that means you're also optimizing it for the maximum good to the, to the grid that it operates in. So in the UK, we obviously have the national grid. Um, and those batteries that are performing best financially also means that they are providing the maximum value to the grid. They're providing the most balancing, they're providing the most um, care for the grid. Um, at Dare, we also then have uh, clean tech solutions where we're taking data and data science that we already operate in. We already sit on a massive amount of data. Um, and with our data scientists and our, and our analyst teams, we're able to start extracting value from that data to people who are not us. So um, providing solutions to kind of future people on where should I put the best batteries? Where should I invest in these different technologies? We start to be able to answer questions on um, supply and demand for different types of assets in different locations. These are things that are kind of coming up. They're being talked about, but these are the types of tools that we start to build out. 
we obviously then have our trading arms. So our uh, engine trading arms um, is what generates the capital that keeps our tech team afloat. Um, mm. This puts us in a really envious space in the startup world in that we don't really focus on our external customers. We can focus as a tech team on our internal customers. I can send an engineer next to one of those power traders desks and they can sit there and say, hey, tell me how this works. Show me what's going on here. And that's just such a force multiplier for our for our company. Um, that flat communication structure that exists within DARE means that people can just join up and work together and engage in the world. Um, those power traders are um, probably some of the best traders in the world. And I don't say that in a uh, toot in our own horn kind of Iman and Jono and with Terra as they founded. They came from these trading worlds. They honed the very best talent. They've got some awesome recruitment strategies that I'm trying to start mimicking in the in the tech world where um, when we hire those traders, they are they go through some psychological screening. They go through some kind of virtual environment. So the tech team build out a virtual trading environment, lets them play with and use these tools. And we go through this in a really blind way. So it's only probably three or four rounds in of recruiting one of these traders that anyone actually sees their CV for the first time with a name attached to it. Um, all that bias stripped away and you're focused on what's the output of this trader? What's the, how do they operate within these um, metrics-based worlds? Um, so the talent they're able to take on is is amazing. Like it's it's so difficult to do that. I think within the tech world, where obviously you need to get in front of someone very quickly, have a conversation, and get them coding in front of you. But um, yeah, I look with envy at their capability to hire in such a blind way. Yeah, um, it's it's so powerful, and it has resulted in this absolute powerhouse of a trading team. That yeah. trading team's powered by our software, so. Uh, there's this nice ecosystem where the dev team provides software, the trading software that they use. ETRM is is the uh, risk management platforms, um, and you know together we we build this software that gives them an edge in the marketplace that lets them uh, operate, generate revenue to help push back towards our our teams that are working on renewable solutions and clean tech solutions. Yeah, fantastic. It's a, like, a remarkable model, really. It's very ingenious, really, in terms of the way it works. But um, I can imagine a very, uh, a very rewarding model. And, and yeah, I, I really like the concept of obviously whenever we're, you know, what what makes a good candidate. It's very subjective, right? Obviously, we try and be as as empirical and um, mm -hmm. you know um, objective as as we can be. But um, it is that balancing act, isn't it? Because again, a large portion of the job that you know I do when working with clients is consult with them on what is, you know, the best process. What's a slick process look like in tech recruitment? Because you know, you're certainly finding at the moment a lot of good candidates. They're not necessarily going to what you classify the best companies, but they're going to companies that have got the best process. You know, really, you know, slick process where they're they're selecting some really great candidates from. Uh, sort of initial stages but then also really engaging in the emotional piece as well where kind of putting an arm around their shoulder making sure that they feel you know, really valued and wanted so you know it's kind of the double double whammy but doing it in a very you know kind of slick and efficient manner um interesting to understand kind of what you could maybe take from their process of you know that initial sort of blind testing how you mm -hmm. could bring that into the the tech world i guess the difficulty within technology and um yeah, maybe a lot of other areas as well is, you know, it's such a high demand market that to ask anybody to do an exercise 
where they haven't necessarily had that emotional engagement piece yet and actually do, <laughs> yeah. a, do an exercise where they're being put in a virtual environment. As we all know, how difficult it is to get any candidates to do a, a tech test from home uh, when quite rightly they're in the middle of a job and maybe they've got three or four other tech tests on the go. So it's kind of like, how do you find that balancing act between, uh, you know, getting the right uh, readout of, of technical skills and assessment whilst also engaging them in a, in a meaningful way. But um, what, what have you tried to bring in, I guess, from their approach? Anything that you sort of brought in at the early stages that seems to be working well for you? Um, so it works really well with our graduate programmes. Um, yeah. We're able to, to reach out to a wider audience there of people who are perhaps um, more willing to go through some more of a process, especially as they look at DARE's graduate program and say that is um, significantly tempting enough to to jump through some hoops, as it were. Um, so that ability to blind screen through um, kind of automated testing um, is still powerful when you're dealing with such a wide variety of candidates very quickly. So we had uh kind of five six hundred applicants through our first um set of graduate training for the tech roles and met with that volume of candidates for what are effectively five to ten end roles means that you're suddenly met with how do we how do we hone these down rapidly and the answer is to get them um in front of laptops and solving some problems and talking to us in a way that lets us go through um candidates quickly assess them grade them um, as much as possible blindly. So we can kind of say, right, this candidate 73's code scores this, um, you know, and then we can match them back up with those candidates at the end. Um, so that works really well for graduate schemes. Obviously, again, you can't hire for personality within a team without getting to know someone. So um, you're at this weird impasse of, you want to treat the candidates as blindly as possible on those first screenings, um, while at the same time getting to know the candidate at a personal level as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, this helps us. So we've got obviously our recruitment team help us do initial CV screens away from um, engineering managers. And then we pass candidates through like a 15, 20 minute engineering manager interview to give a first pass. Do you pass the sniff test? Mm. Um, you know, are you a, a human who can hold a conversation um ask questions be curious and that helps us screen very quickly for are you going to go anywhere within this this interviewing process yeah. um so yeah a lot of it is that screening of of uh, say no as quickly as possible um you know don't waste the candidate's time so don't go into hey let's do a load of coding where you're effectively asking for free work i mean Mm. This is your day job, and I'm asking you to give an hour of your time for free to solve a problem that we both know is never going to hit production, and we're going to throw it away two hours after we've assessed it. So it's a it's a rough thing to say, hey, you're a recruiter. Do you want to do an hour's worth of recruitment time for me for free, and then we'll decide whether you want the job or not? Mm. It'd be bizarre in any other role, but it is the best way at the moment to, to assess candidates. Mm. Um, so, yeah being able to say no quickly by by passing some of those screening stages is is helpful for both sides of it save their time save our time everyone comes out of that better mm, absolutely yeah and i guess you know it would be interesting to see your take on it as well but but they're obviously a great company doing some really innovative and i say impactful work um i guess proportionately you probably get 
quite a lot of applicants maybe when you do direct advertising especially at the kind of grad level um you know maybe at the more senior level like the rest of the market it's not always straightforward but um you know you probably do get a lot of people that are interested in working with you so it's an even greater challenge isn't it to kind of strip uh strip the um you know the people that that, that are and aren't what you're looking for uh, early on um but i do really buy into what you were saying about you know the what drew you to dare is is kind of making the difference and it's something that i you know as as a when i started true north as cheesy as it sounds the most important thing for us was actually we partnered with companies that we feel like they were making a difference you know actually some kind of social and positive impact in in what they're doing um and it's something i'm noticing more and more and i think it's probably since the pandemic actually in all honesty is i think they, those last couple of years has really made people kind of reevaluate in life what's most important to them and we're seeing now more and more people kind of coming to us saying the most important thing to me about my next job is that i can go home in the evening and feel like i've made a difference you know they've actually i've done something i've, I've you know it's a great thing about data science right there's so many problems you can solve with data science that if you're a good data scientist you've almost got the luxury of being able to choose what problems you want to apply your skills and experience to to to, to solve and um yeah we're kind of seeing that probably more and more now you know more important to a lot of people on their list of criteria above money you know above, above salary and often they say actually you know i'll probably move for the same salary i might even take slightly less you know to move from this world where i'm just not emotionally engaged in the problems we're solving at all to something where you know i really feel like the the, the, the things we're doing are making a difference so uh yeah i totally resonate with that and um i think it's uh something not to be underestimated in an ability to attract good people you know great great talent moving forward um Cool. Okay. And um, I guess the the kind of um, the future of, of green energy and renewables now, is there, a, there any sort of area you feel is kind of very exciting in terms of where that, that domain, that sector <laughs> is headed? I'm sure there's probably, from what you were saying earlier, lots of different ways of which you can solve, lots of problems you can solve, lots of ways you can apply the, uh, you know, uh, your, your expertise. But um, yeah, any particular trends that are looking very exciting for you? So I'll uh... I'll give a caveat that it's my opinion and not anyone else's sure. um, of, of, of where I find the interest, where I think the world is going within energy and um, not to be taken as, as advice of, of doing anything, but um, uh, there's a, a, an almost inevitable push towards renewables. Um, I think anyone saying anything else is, is, is going to be talking nonsense. So we, we kind of have to go, there are going to be more renewables on the grid, wind, Wind and solar and some hydroelectric is is almost a given as as the current direction. Um, with that comes a set of challenges, and they're they're where the interesting things are to fix. Um, intermittency is the biggest problem. So intermittency being um, when the sun goes down, the solar stops; when the wind stops blowing, the the wind stops, and it's almost a like an an obvious problem with with those technologies. And the answer. The answer is batteries. Um, all of the tech work is in batteries because you can do good things with them. You can do cool things with them. It's there's only so much optimization you can do of a solar farm once you've put it in a field. It, it, it sat there. It generates electricity. All of the optimization work, all of the interesting technology comes around the batteries, and that's um, anything from where do you put that physical battery for optimum. Uh, working around grid constraints and working around geographies and working around where they need to be. Um, the optimization of which markets do those batteries need to be in? Um, 
the optimization of the batteries themselves. You know, you start to go down as far as how does the heating and cooling systems work on them to extract the most out of it? How do you turn them on and off in the most efficient way? So all of those, um, as you say, the data science approaches, all of the optimization on the batteries themselves are going to start to play in. Um, with that come the new storage solution. So uh, you kind of go backwards a few years and the, the battery technologies that were used then and the battery technologies that we use now are so, uh, we've come so far in this period of time and that progress will keep going and will accelerate. So the energy density of those batteries will go up with the, the chemistry and the, the work there. Inevitably, we'll start finding new technologies and new storage solutions. Um, yeah, we see a lot of things on like the, what happens if I carry this concrete block up a big hill and then drop it when I want some energy? And those are, it, they're in their infancy at the moment. Like no one's saying that they are um, solutions for grid at the moment. But what's really interesting is the number of people, the number of companies working on all these different technologies. Um, from my perspective within DARE, that's, they're all able to be modeled as some kind of storage solution, as some kind of charge it up and then discharge it. Um, match up, you know, charge it when the demand is is low and then discharge it when the demand is high. Mm. Um, it's important to keep our eyes out in, in technology as what's coming up next, what are the next things going for, because the speed of change is so high. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Distributed assets, that's the next big thing as well. Um, lots and lots of smaller assets, which bring us that resilience. Here we see things like um, Ukraine is, is a... Um, uh, kind of a trial by fire for a lot of these technologies of seeing how they're managing to keep a grid up and keep energy flowing around a country even while under the worst of conditions um, and the answers there are, are battery storage solutions um, that are distributed a fault in the network in one area is able to be countered by um, uh, bringing up batteries in different areas and being able to have that as distributed is awesome and obviously the problem then with distributed network is very quickly you get past the capability of a human to look after it. The the national grid at the moment is still sat there, they're in the control room, they're instructing assets, they're requesting assets to come online, which is a model designed for massive gas and coal stations where you can ring up Jim, the engineer, who you know because you've been and had a few drinks with before, um, to bring up that coal station and it comes online, it takes two days to come online and then it outputs. That world's going to change to these yeah. micro assets all over the place. And the only answer is to automate. Um, that's that's where we're inevitably going to be moving as a, as a world towards mm -hmm. these distributed small um, storage assets. Interesting. Yeah, that makes total sense, I guess. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, 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 for one, am just continually amazed at the speed of which, you know, kind of, uh, like I say, battery chemistry and, and battery technology seems to be progressing, um, you know, and I guess a large portion of that is you've got to look at the, the Teslas of this world. And obviously, when they, they throw their money behind something like that, everyone else probably wakes up to the idea of actually maybe there is, there is something in this battery in the market. <laughs> um, but, um, but no, it's, uh, it's incredibly, uh, it's super speedy evolving um, field, isn't it? But it's uh, very, very interesting to see. And I suppose we're at that point now where, 
you know, what's the phrase necessity breeds innovation. Um, and I think we're at that point now across the, the globe where, you know, it's break, breaking point, isn't it? We need to evolve. We need to create these technologies and we need to, to get there sooner rather than later for obvious reasons. And uh, that's bringing about, like you say, a lot of very exciting uh, kind of startups in this space and a lot of investment going on into this this particular area, which makes it a real kind of one to watch, I think, in the in the world in tech in general. But, uh, but no, very interesting to hear from your uh, informed perspective you know some of the exciting um trends that are, that are coming through perfect well sam really really enjoyed the chat i think it's very insightful and really uh, interesting um not only the energy piece but you know talking to you about your uh, your experience and um skills as a, as a tech leader um and i'd like to end every episode um if i may by asking for your one favorite piece of advice so if somebody would say you know what's your uh, your one bit of advice that you'd like to pass on to uh your fellow uh humankind uh what, what would that be um oh one piece is really difficult i end up with two a lot of the time but um <laughs> i'll give you a couple if you've got a couple <laughs> I'll, I'll go a couple so the, the first is is everything is story so as an engineering leader um I went down a rabbit hole of learning to tell stories, learning about storytelling frameworks and how to um, hone your message and, and take people on the journey with you. Um, so learning about storytelling, um, that was one of the most useful things that I learned. And then as a concise piece of advice I received early was my, my most powerful question was, um, what can I do to help you? So when I'm interacting with someone, the most powerful question I can ask them is, is how can I help you? How can I make your life better? How can I make your world better? Mm. Um, that unlocks so much. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's two awesome pieces of advice. I couldn't agree more on the storytelling thing. I think, you know, when we were talking earlier about winning hearts and minds, you know, being able to take people on that journey and tell that story and, you know, if people to be emotionally engaged, I think is essential really in the world that we live in actually to stand apart from, from so much noise that is out there. And, uh, you know, obviously a lot of scientific studies have been done about just the, the brain chemistry that's involved in the way we actually follow a story versus follow a set of facts. You know, it's, it is a lot more emotionally engaging. So to, to not understand, you know, that piece I think is, uh, yeah, is, is, uh, is vital. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, uh, both very, very great bits of information, uh, great bits of advice. So uh, I thank you for, uh, for, for giving them. Um, perfect. All right. Well, really enjoyed the, uh, the conversation. Thanks again for taking part and um, best of luck with uh, everything in your, uh, your role at Dare. I'm sure you guys will continue to, uh, to smash it. And um, yeah, we'll be following your progress uh, very closely. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time, Guy. Cheers. Bye for now. Bye-bye.